Hello, and welcome to the Tech Done Right podcast, TableXI's podcast about building better software, careers, companies, and communities. I'm Noel Rappin. If you like the podcast and would like to encourage us to continue, please follow us on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right and leave a review on iTunes. iTunes reviews really do help new listeners find our show. We also have a new newsletter where you can find interesting stories, podcast news, and some mini essays from me. You can subscribe at techdoneright.io slash newsletter. Thanks. Today on Tech Done Right, we have a conversation with Dan Hodes, TableXI's Director of Operations, and Claire Liu, the CEO of Know Your Company. We talk about management one-on-one meetings, how to create a safe space where you can learn honestly how your coworkers are doing. We'll have tips about questions to ask, things to avoid, and how to use this information to help build career growth in your organization. There are tips here that you can start using in your organization tomorrow. So enjoy. Claire, would you like to introduce yourself to everybody? Sure. Hey, everyone. My name is Claire, as Noel said, and I'm the CEO of Know Your Company. And Dan? Hey, uh, I'm Dan Hodes. I'm the Director of Operations for TableXI, which means I sort of oversee all of how we do the work, uh, software, design, development, etc. So Claire, Know Your Company is all about transparency between the company and the employees, and both of you and your jobs uh, wind up having a lot of one-on-one meetings with people who report to you or people who are colleagues to you in a way, and, and that's the kind of thing that we're going to be talking about here why are these meetings important and why is it important to be able to have a good one-on-one meeting with somebody else on your team? I feel that one-on-ones are one of the most rare and almost sacred times that you have with an employee to actually get to the bottom of how she or he is feeling. I think in you know a workplace, you have so much communication going back and forth, whether it's Slack, whether it's email, whether it's client meetings, phone calls, all this back and forth. And yet even with all that communication, a lot of times what doesn't bubble up is actually how an employee is feeling. And so I think a one-on-one conversation face-to-face, it's one of the few rare times where you actually have the opportunity to do that. So that's why I think it's really important. Yeah, I think it's an opportunity to create a really uh, personal connection, something that maybe goes beyond just, hey, how's the, you know, the status of your project? And more, what are you feeling? How are you? And how is that influencing the way you're working and the way you're living? Absolutely. I mean, I even remember before becoming CEO of Know Your Company, how I even you know started the company is I was actually an employee at an early stage e-commerce startup. And I remember having one-on-ones in that company and feeling like even though the CEO and I were technically having you know one-on-one conversations, it still wasn't the right format. He wasn't right asking the right questions in the right ways where I felt comfortable voicing a lot of these concerns that I had about the company. And so I ended up leaving. And, you know, we work with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of companies where that happens every single day. Sure. It's sort of a truism that people leave managers, not jobs, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. One thing you just said, Claire, I really feel like it's the onus of the uh, of the manager, the person who's in the higher status position to create a safe space. Um, right? We can't leave it up to the employee to just volunteer anything. Uh, we need to make an environment where they can volunteer information, where we can have the level of candor you would have with talking with a buddy at, at the bar or out to dinner. So how do you do that? What are some techniques that you can use to create that safe space? Or maybe what are some things that people do that they may not realize are hindering the ability to create that space? Totally. Yeah. So the first thing that we always recommend to the CEOs and managers that we work with is to make 
empathy your mission when you're having a one-on-one because what happens a lot of times when you do a one-on-one is, and I don't think this is the case for you, Dan, but for a lot of the managers and CEOs we work with, it'll end up becoming like a status report meeting. It'll end up becoming like, oh, I'm going to like critique the employee's performance in my one-on-one. All that is important stuff, but they shouldn't actually happen in a one-on-one. Again, like I was saying earlier, it's really invaluable, almost sacred time to really uncover that truth of how that employee is feeling so you can prevent stuff like an employee leaving or an employee getting you know upset or something like that, right? So when you make empathy your mission in a one-on-one, the whole conversation changes, right? You start to listen more, you start to, even your body language changes, right? The reason for why you ask questions change. Um, all of a sudden, when you even say, hey, you know, the whole purpose of this one-on-one is for me to just listen and just to understand where you're coming from, right? That decreases that that intimidation Um, that's involved. So that's one of the big things that we recommend. I don't know if you've also found that to be true, Dan, in the the one-on-ones you do. One of the biggest things I try to bring to all my one-on-ones is active listening. It's partially hearing what they're saying, but then the other part is uh, trying to internalize, you know, how how they're acting. What's their body language? Are they hesitating? Uh, Do they feel comfortable? And trying to put myself as much as I can in their position as well, right? Um, The quickest way to build empathy with someone is to try to imagine what, what is it like to be them? And sometimes that's hard. Sometimes you need to start asking questions either of them or of others to get a, a broader perspective so that you can bring more of yourself and more openness to that meeting. Absolutely. Yeah. And I was thinking too, I mean, just to, to build off that too, Dan, the, the other big thing that we also recommend, I mean, you nailed it. It's those those questions themselves, right? Those are the things that really, really get to those sort of nuggets of truth. And for our CEOs and managers, we always recommend asking questions around two different areas. So we always say to ask questions to uncover moments of tension and specific moments of energy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure this, you know, this may resonate with you. You know, a lot of times if you find yourself in a one-on-one, you'll kind of sometimes default to asking, oh, how's it going? Right. Or how have things been lately? I, sometimes I, you know, I remember doing that before, you know, myself in the past. And the problem with that is, you know, the answer ends up being fine. You know, things are fine. Right. <laughs> Everybody's super conditioned to answer that question with fine. Right. right. And the reason because of that is because the question isn't around anything specific. And so uh, what we always recommend is when you ask moments around specific moments of tension, so situations, real situations that have happened in the past when someone has felt bored, angry, frustrated, disappointed, right? And then specific moments of energy, so specific moments of when they felt the most motivated or proud or excited. So when you ask Questions like, when is the last time you felt frustrated this past year? You know, what can I do to help make things less frustrating for you, right? Again, specific moments of tension and specific moments of energy, like when is the time you felt most motivated in the past two weeks? You know, people always are able to think about something concrete versus just like, oh, how is it going? Well, that's so vague. <laughs> what sort of cadence do you recommend for these kinds of meetings? Like how often do you, do you recommend that this kind of meeting happens? Yeah, for the most part, I do my uh, one-on-ones every other week for about half an hour. There have been times when I've done more frequently, uh, like every week. Um, and it really depends on the individual, which is, I guess, maybe a lot of what I think about one-on-ones is that there's there's not going to be one right format or a specific you know formula to doing this well that's going to work for everybody. You have to be a little bit more... Uh, open to what the specific needs of the individual are and how they best learn and react. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah. 
Oh my gosh, I so agree, Dan. And I think one thing that people might actually even be surprised by is when you say that you guys do one-on-ones every other week, I think a lot of people would be like, oh my God, that's so often. (laughs) Like, there's no way in our 70-person company, you know, with my 12 direct reports that I could be doing one-on-ones, you know, every other week. It's interesting. A lot of the companies that we work with will do one-on-ones once a quarter or once a month. Um, However, here's the thing that I want to point out to who's ever listening, which is what I love about why you guys do those one-on-ones so frequently. And correct me if I'm wrong, Dan, but from what I understand, it's because you have paired people up to be responsible for having those conversations. So it's not just like the manager having to have one-on-ones with, like I was saying, 12, 15 people. It's you know, one person almost sponsoring, so to speak, the other person. And so I think that makes it one, manageable, two, it increases the frequency, which is always good. You know, the more often, the better. I love that. I, I, yeah, and I, I'm sure listeners would be curious to hear a little bit more about how you settled on that. So yeah, we have, we, we call it different things at different times, but we often call it sponsorship um, or career mentor. And yeah, the one-on-ones that you have are not with your manager. It's a little opaque at TableXI sometimes who your manager actually is. Usually in TableXI, that's your person who's your project manager. Um, but for career development or for this kind of like personal check-in, uh, you've been paired with somebody. They're usually more senior than you, but it's usually somebody that you feel like you can learn from. Right. Uh, or somebody who can guide you through the next six months or year of your career. And and the expectation is that, that that will change. Somebody might be the right fit for you at one point, but then a year later, uh, you may switch around and, and work with somebody else. As an outsider, right? As as someone who, again, we, you know, we work with hundreds of companies, all sorts of shapes, sizes, and industries. And I feel like what you guys are doing, it's really unique. And it's so well aligned, I think, in employees' best interests about thinking about not sort of, you know, a one-on-one is merely to sort of report to and like have someone sort of telling you, oh, this is how you're doing. But again, it's about building empathy. And that can be regardless of sort of seniority or job title. I mean, even Mark, you know, the COO in the company, he has uh, a sponsor and he, you know, he is someone who's asking him questions, which I find, yeah, to be really incredible. It's one of the things I like uh, most about TableXI is that sort of commitment to shepherding everybody's uh, career development and professional growth along. And we do this uh, activity called the sticky note game, uh, where the employee and their career mentor and usually someone from the leadership team will sit down and they'll talk about for the next six months, uh, what do you want to learn? What do you want to, how do you want to grow? What does success look like? You know, if we were six months in the future looking back, what would you have accomplished and, and feel like you'd be really proud about? And then we talk about that briefly and then we each individually write sticky notes with either very specific uh, or very kind of broad topics, and we'll do an affinity mapping. They're not all work-related either. Sometimes it's personal. Yeah, they can absolutely be personal, um, or they can be social. It doesn't really matter. And then once you have that, that sort of becomes your roadmap for your career mentor to be like, great, now I understand better for the next six months uh, what you want to be working on. And also you understand what we are hoping for. Yep. Yeah. We really see that this is the six month period where you can really make the leap from being, you know, an entry level person to a, a mid level. Uh, and we'd like to see you start developing those skills, that kind of thing. Again, like I was saying, it's pretty novel. And um, I think it has a huge reason to do with why. I mean, you guys have such an amazing culture. I mean, I was, um, yeah, just in the offices the other week. And you can you can tell the difference um, in how people talk to each other and the sense of openness, even just stepping into the office. So it's cool to hear about. 
And one thing that's interesting about the sticky note game is it becomes an input both into staffing choices because often people are expressing opinions about what they want to work on in the future. Um, and it also becomes an input to your one-on-ones with your career mentor. And it's frequently the artifact that you start uh, the meetings with. We try not to have it be kind of status check-in-ish, but it is kind of like which of these goals still seems important. Uh, we sometimes try to get people to to commit to a, one or two specific concrete steps that they can do in the next two weeks to move them towards one of the goals. Mm-hmm. Uh, I view it as uh, it's almost um, it's not quite a to do list, but it's uh, it's almost suggestions both for the person being mentored and the mentor. Like I review each of my mentees' sticky notes uh, every other week, and I say, okay, well, what can I do? You know, either me personally, like. Uh, maybe it's, I, I should read this book about practical design discovery, and then I can talk to my uh, UX designer uh, sponsee about it. Or maybe it's, oh, you know what? I should hook up my um, uh, junior developer with Noel and have them spend a day pairing on TDD because Noel's going to teach them much better than I ever would. That's, yeah, that's really neat. I have a quick thought that I'd love to maybe go back to, Noel, something that you said earlier that I thought was really intriguing that you posed, which is what are the things that you shouldn't do? And yeah, maybe I'll pose that today and I've got some thoughts myself, but is there anything that you consciously make sure when you're in a one-on-one that you do not do? It's the big (laughs) (laughs) no-no. Yeah, there's a few things that immediately jump to mind. One is, you know, I I try not to make it um, any sort of status update, like... I maybe will talk a little bit about the project they're working on, but only in the sense to try and dig into like how they're doing and how they're growing on it, not to really get a sense of how the project is doing. I should say that works for us because we have other mechanisms for getting status updates on projects. Absolutely. We don't need need this meeting to cover that ground. But even if it's a project I'm on, I think it would be a separate meeting. It goes back to uh, that whole idea that, you know, to your point, Dan, earlier of wanting the one-on-one to be a safe place and, uh, you know, to our philosophy of, again, it's all about trying to empathize with the employee. And so, so the status update, that can be something separate. That can be another meeting or email, et cetera. What's on top of your list, Claire? On top of my list of what you should not do during a one-on-one is get defensive. That is the number one mm. thing I personally also <laughs> try to keep in mind. I actually think it's my biggest personal flaw is I have a tendency to get defensive. It's so hard. Particularly as the manager. Exactly. Particularly as the manager. I think it goes for the employee as well, but particularly as the manager, because if you're here in this one-on-one and you're asking questions, right? Say a question, you know, a question around a moment of tension, like I was saying, right? And you ask, when's the last time you felt uh, like you didn't have any control in the company? You know, and they say something about being micromanaged. It's very easy to take a comment like that personally, right? So when, when someone does respond honestly, it's so important that you don't get defensive because the minute you do, that actually kills open culture. The minute you get defensive, you send the message to that employee that, you know what, I didn't really want to hear that. I asked you, but I didn't really want to hear it. And the minute that happens, that sets the tone and a precedent for every other question you will continue to ask. You're not going to get an honest response because the employee, they read that reaction, they saw the defensiveness, and they're going to, uh, they're going to remember that. Yeah, you you just you you lose all the trust that you've been working so hard to build. Exactly. So being really conscious of how you react when someone does give you, you know, sometimes some tough and hard to swallow feedback uh, is really important as a manager. And we always recommend a few techniques for doing that. So one of them is to not immediately respond. <laughs> right. The time, the one on one is not a time for you to justify or rebuke a point or try to to rebut every comment that you're, that's made. I mean, to your point, Dan, earlier, it's all about active listening. It's about just sitting there for a second, taking notes, 
digesting and saying, thank you. I'm going to come back to that. You know, and I'm going to think about what you, you know, what you mentioned. So that's one thing is just don't respond right away. And then the second is the way or the reason why people get defensive. The reason why any manager, CEO, why I get defensive is because you assume that the person has ill intention, right? So you assume they're giving me this feedback because they're trying to be spiteful, because they're unhappy with the project, because they want, you know, they're, they're greedy about responsibility. It's because you assume negative intention. So the way to disarm defensiveness, the way to not get defensive is simply to assume positive intent. And so what you do is you just assume that everything this person is saying is just coming from a, a real place of concern. And whether or not you may agree with it, uh, whether or not it's justified, doesn't really matter. They're just saying it because uh, they care about the company. Again, they have legitimate concerns. So the minute you assume positive intention, that defensiveness starts to melt away. Their perception of a problem makes it a problem, whether or not like you agree that the problem exists. The, the fact that, that the other person like perceives an issue. Yes. It means it needs it. to be addressed one way or another. Exactly. There's a great book. I believe it's called Crucial Conversations. I'm sure both of you are familiar with it. Sort of a classic <laughs> communications and management read. And one of the things they talk about is emotions are facts. Whether or not the reason why someone feels angry or mad or upset is justified or right or something you agree with doesn't matter. The fact that they feel so angry that's already a fact that just happened already. And you have to find a way to deal with it. And so sort of accepting that and trying to find the positive intent behind it and giving someone the benefit of the doubt is how you can sort of not, <laughs> you know, react with a knee jerk reaction of, Oh my God, this person's out to get me. Something I thought of Claire, when you were talking about, I really fundamentally believe that if you're talking to someone and if you're thinking of the next thing to say, as you're talking, you're not really listening. Yes. Uh, I, I do a lot of improv comedy and, and I think it comes out of somewhat my improv background where it's like, if you're not in the moment, if you're not really paying full attention, then you're, you're missing out yes. and you're doing a disservice. Uh, there's a great book. It's called, uh, I think, Yes And. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, from uh, Kelly Leonard and Tom Yorton, all about uh, the second, like lessons from Second City and how the attitude of Yes And and, uh, and listening can uh, be transferred out of the comedy world and, and into uh, the business world and everyday conversations. And I think that's a really valuable uh, tip for anybody who's in this position of doing one on one. Absolutely. And I think there are even a few small tactical things you can do to stuff that you probably already do, Dan, to even encourage yourself to remind yourself, you know what, I'm supposed to be listening more than I am talking. One thing thing we always recommend to folks is whether or not you are a note taker, bring a notebook, bring something to write something down and just have it in front of you as almost a reminder to yourself and a signal to the other person that I'm here to take notes. I'm here to listen. I'm here to, to be a sponge and absorb. Yeah. It also suggests that you shouldn't come in really with much of an agenda in terms of like specific yes. things that you need to say because it's a listening activity. Oh, I don't know. Uh, I'm, I always come in with some things prepared. So I don't have a half an hour of conversation prepared, but I'll always have one or two things so that I have conversation starters. Cause I, I like to, I like to prepare beforehand. I, I try to take at least 15 minutes before any of these half an hour meetings to be like, uh, what's, what's the goal? What do I need to check in on? What conversations have we not revisited in a while? Just, just mentally get in the right space to be the most effective I can be. Mark has taken to posting on our sponsor Slack channel every week, um, like three or four possible conversation starter questions for people who have one-on-one scheduled that week to use or not use, but just as places to begin. Yeah, that's fantastic. Do you have any favorite questions in particular, Dan, that you like to ask? 
Oh, I don't know that I do. Uh, I, I often read the the questions from Mark, but I don't think I I rarely will list, uh, use them directly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more to just get me thinking about. Hey, we've been we've been t- uh, focused a lot maybe on um, uh, acquisition of a new skill. Uh, maybe I should switch the focus up for this meeting and talk about right what's frustrated you in the company recently. Yes. Or what's something you're really proud of recently? Because you don't want to always harp on the same topics. Exactly, and I love that you said frustrated and that you said proud. You know, like I was saying earlier, moment of tension and a moment of, of energy. Um, I think for, for the CEOs that we've worked with, they always learn at least one new thing if they're asking something really specific around that moment of energy or that moment of tension. Um, one of my favorites that I always like to ask is, uh, when have you felt stressed? Mm. When's the last time you felt stressed or overworked? That's one of my, or another one of mine is, favorites is when have you been annoyed by something? Because when you're annoyed by something, it doesn't mean you're like outright, like just livid, but it doesn't mean that you're happy. It means there's something bothering you and that usually gives way to something a bit more. So I always like those two questions around moments of tension in particular. So what do you guys do to like, there's a certain balance that you're trying to strike here between having a natural conversation and sort of asking these slightly artificial questions. Are you aware, like, what do you do to make that smooth? Is it something that just comes over time? Do you have a technique for for making it seem more natural? It's a great question. One thing that we actually always recommend um, and that I do myself is I actually do a lot of prep work like Dan, not in the sense of uh, writing out an agenda, but to compensate for what you're talking about, Noel, which is, you know, you probably have some really key points or or questions that you want to pose. But like you were saying, you don't want to come across as artificial. And so I think a huge way to overcome that is to actually write out what you're going to say and to practice that. And so the structure that we use a lot of times is we'll start off by saying, you know, hey, like really excited about, you know, getting the time to talk with you. Um, you know, from my perspective, the whole purpose of this time is just to to hear how you're feeling, hear how things are going for you, but also just to, for, for me to just kind of sit here and shut up and listen to your time. Uh, you know, and then some, they'll probably say like, oh, okay, cool, you know. Um, and then I'll, you know, d- dive into like, I'll ask usually one or two questions around a moment of tension, one or two questions around a mo- moment of energy. And it actually surprisingly you know, flows well if you're listening, you know, to, to Dan's point. If you're in the moment, you're not trying to think about what, what to say next. But having that outline, at least kind of practicing those questions or knowing what you want to address, I think helps because when if you don't, I think it, you come across as fake and artificial if, you, if you're trying to come up with stuff on the spot too much and you're not really sure, you know, what you're looking to, to ask about. That's sort of my take. That really resonates with me, that, that sort of like, Setting the expectation. I try to do this with all my the folks I mentor. It's like I'm I'm here for you. This is your time, and, and we're going to get out of it what you want. But any anything I can do for you, that's that's the goal. And and you have to be really ah, you have to care like super hard. Yes, yes, <laughs> love that, Dan. I view the success of the people I'm mentoring as my success. And I, if they're having trouble, then I'm having trouble. Uh, and I think they can see that and feel it because I you know I don't hide anything back. One little thing that we that I think we do is to, we have a conference room that's much more informal. Uh, we have a couple conference rooms that look like interrogation rooms, and then we have one that's got a couch and some. It actually looks a little bit more like a therapist's office. <laughs> I, I tend to try and have one on ones there if I can, just because it is a little bit more casual, uh, and I think that that kind of environmental cue really makes a difference. 
Absolutely. I think changing up the location in general is always helpful. Getting outside the building, Um, you know, not necessarily going to the, you know, most crowded coffee shop where it's awkward to to sort of talk or speak up, but, you know, leaving the building, getting away from sort of, oh, wow, you know, all my coworkers are here. I feel like I can't really be honest is always helpful. I think going for a walk is a really effective mechanism as well. The things you will hear when you're out moving are very different than when you're sitting. We should start going up to the roof for them. Yeah, on our that, building. that would be great. What do you do with somebody who is remote? Does that change your approach a little bit? Some of these cues are much harder to pick up if you're on Skype or whatever you're doing. How does that affect the one-on-one? That's a great question, Noel. We're actually a, a remote company ourselves, and actually a large portion of our clients are also remote. And what we've found to work really well is uh, Google Hangout or Skype, you know, where you do have someone on a video camera, it gets you pretty close. It's not perfect. And of course, in-person is always going to be superior in terms of the body language reading that Dan was talking about in terms of also sort of establishing that personal rapport, but it gets you pretty far. So we do, you know, one-on-ones over, yeah, over Google Hangout. Uh, and I find that personally, the key to it is is really the questions that I'm asking. You know, if I'm not prepared, and, and like I was mentioning earlier, if I don't know exactly the, you know, have four to six questions sort of tucked in my back pocket, then I'm not going to really get very insightful answers because I didn't spend much time thinking about the questions. So I feel like you can actually get pretty close remote to getting some, uh, having a great one-on-one as you can in person just, just via Google Hangout. I'm actually curious. I would love to hear kind of from a more personal side, like Dan, what you're talking about, you know, giving a shit and viewing the success of your mentors as your own success. To be frank, that's like a pretty rare perspective to hear from a manager. It's really refreshing. And I was curious to hear, like, how did you get to that viewpoint? Like, did you have a really terrible boss at some point? And that's the reason why. How did you develop (laughs) that, like, management philosophy? How have you seen it paid off? Like, why do you think those things? Uh, I think it was actually the opposite. I had a wonderful mentor. One of my first jobs out of college was at Rosetta Stone, the language learning company. cool. And the uh, sort of, I think it was the head of development and finance sort of took me under his wing and said, we're going to meet every other week or so, and we're just going to have time together, and, and we're going to talk about the company, and we're going to talk about what you're learning, and we're going to talk about the challenges you're having. And I think that set the expectation for me that it was so helpful for me and for my career and for my growth that I've always wanted to give that to other people too. That's amazing. I've always wanted to be at, at, co- at companies that uh, have that ethos, right? That notion of like, ah, we're all in this together. We're all trying our best. We're all learning together. And if we can find ways to make that better or easier or uh, more successful, why wouldn't we mm-hmm. do that? It's it's maybe the most important thing to invest in. So I, I think I put more effort into into this and thinking about this than most things just because I found it to be so so important and so rewarding. Absolutely. I think that's so cool to hear. I almost, and I think I, you know, touched on this briefly. I had a, <laughs> an almost the opposite source of inspiration. I had a boss who he wasn't, you know, an evil boss or anything. He wasn't a bad leader by any means, but he just didn't know how to create an environment where people felt safe and comfortable giving their opinions. And it was a really small company, about six people, an early stage startup. And so you would think 
Claire, come on. You know, everyone knows each other. Everyone's giving feedback. Like, that's got to be the case, you would think. But even in this six-person company, I felt as though I couldn't be honest about my thoughts on the direction of the company or different roles and responsibilities. And at the time, this was maybe like four or five years ago, it was the first time I'd ever worked for someone. So I'd started a company before that and then went to take some time off and then go work for someone. So it was the first time I'd worked for someone. So I thought actually at the time I was like, you know what, I might just be like a disgruntled millennial right now. Like I think maybe this is like, I might actually just be thinking this because I've never worked for someone before. You know, I started my own company coming out of college. So like, this is just the learning curve, right? Like of working for someone. I thought that for like a year and a half. And then I'd studied uh, learning and organizational change in college. So the study of how people work together in groups. And I just started noticing a lot of sort of bottlenecks of communication. I started noticing also just how frustrated this made me feel. Oh my gosh, you know, frustrated that yeah, I just feel like I can't speak up that, you know, my, my coworkers were feeling similarly. And so that's when I decided, you know what, I got to do something about this. Like I, you know, when I Google stuff about this, like there's no tool around this at the time, you know, there's no like philosophy around this resource around this. So that's when, yeah, I decided to quit my job and ended up starting my own consulting practice to help CEOs with this and then ended up, yeah, uh, starting Know Your Company. So I always am very curious as to, to the inspiration behind why people believe certain paths around management, because I think uh, those experiences strongly influence, you know, why people think, okay, one-on-one should be like this, or uh, you don't really need one-on-ones. What's been the most surprising thing to you as, as that you've learned as, you, as you've worked on Know Your Company? Yeah, that's such a good question. So, oh, so many things. We actually just um, published uh, something about the top uh, three blind spots that we found CEOs face gathered from all the data from Know Your Company customers. So over 15,000 people who use our product in about 25 different countries. And the number one blind spot that we found, is fascinating, uh, was we found that employees feel stifled in their companies. So that's probably the most surprising thing I've learned, which is that we found uh, 76% of employees feel that they can be contributing to an area outside their current role. So they feel like they could be doing more. 76%, which is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. 76% of employees feel they could be contributing in an area outside their current role. And that blew me away because most managers and CEOs that I talk to feel that their employees are super busy, right? They feel that their employees are slammed and they're doing a ton and they're overworked. And yet the statistic shows that employees at the end of the day are actually hungering. They're just, they really deeply want more growth, more learning. That's not even contradictory, right? right. Somebody could be slammed doing the same thing over and over yes, again. Yes, there we go. I think, I think that's sort of a stereotype in the industry that you go to a place and you wind up doing the same thing over and over again. And the only way to get new responsibilities and to be able to do new things is to go someplace else. And it's one of the things that we are explicitly fighting against with the way we handle our one-on-ones and the way we do the sticky note game. Like we're really trying to give people the opportunities for growth, you know, within Table X. Yes. No. So I think that's, that's been, been one of the biggest uh, sort of blind spots and most surprising insights we found. The second one is the fact that most employees actually think their own company is behind the curve on something in particular. Hmm. Yeah. So we ask and know your company, we ask the question directly is there anything in the company that you know you're, you feel like that we're behind the curve on? And I believe it's 65% of employees felt that, yes, we are behind the curve on something. And yet 
you know, I would argue, okay, you know, do you see 65% of your employees actively coming up to you saying, hey, we're behind the curve on this? Um, you know, very similarly, we, we asked the question through Know Your Company, have you seen something recently and thought to yourself, I wish we'd done that? And 75% of employees said, yes, I've seen something from a competitor that I wish we'd done. And again, it's like, for some reason, we don't hear as often as CEOs and managers with that level of frequency, new ideas, different observations from the front lines of what other companies and, you know, things are, are, are happening um, that could be important. So, you know, the fact that employees think that we're behind the curve um, and yet you don't hear it is, is a huge opportunity where when you have these one-on-ones, you can ask questions around that, right? You can ask, is there anything that you've seen recently that you thought, oh, that'd be really cool if we did at you know, Table XI or did in our company? Um, and that uncovers a ton. There's something really exciting about the idea of creating an environment where people feel like they have the ability to bubble up those ideas and then the, uh, the further ability to explore them. Right. Um, because if you give, yes. if you give, if you give the people, uh, the chance, like they're going to blow your mind, right? They're going to do such amazing things. Um, you just need to give them some space to do it. Absolutely. We always talk about how almost the best ideas and sources of innovation and improvement all come from within a company. You don't need to go look, you know, outside and do research or look at what everyone else is doing. It's all internal. Uh, your employees themselves have a lot of the answers that you're looking for as a leadership team, and you just have to unlock them by just asking the right questions and creating that that safe space. So that's, yeah, it's the power of one-on-ones. So do you guys have some recommendations of books or resources that people can look at that will help them learn about this stuff? I know you each mentioned a book before. Is there something else that you think people should look at? Yeah, I love the book Crucial Conversations. I think it's kind of my personal sort of tenant and guidepost for a lot of my own philosophy around how to approach um, creating a safe space for employees. Uh, the other thing that, you know, I'd recommend is, you know, I do a lot of writing on Medium, too, on this topic. So if anyone's curious on, oh, you know, what are those top three blind spots she was talking about? Or, you know, we have a list of, of those. We have lists of the top nine questions to ask, you know, the top four questions to ask every employee. Um, tons of that if, uh, you know, you want to check that out on Medium. And we're actually just about to Early next week, you guys get the scoop. We're about to launch actually a brand new knowledge center where it will catalog all of this and everything we've learned in the past three years. So it'll be all of our data, all of our insights around you know having good one-on-ones and just creating an open and honest culture in general. So, Yeah, I recommended uh, Yes And before. And I think another good one is a book called Drive. It's about the science of motivation and how people pursue mastery, autonomy, and purpose and those, those driving factors um, to allow them to really... Uh, achieve their goals. I think there's a really a good video version of that, the thesis of that, like an animated Ooh. talk. Yes, I love that. Well, I have another thing to recommend. I want to plug um, taking an improv class, especially if, if you're in a, a city that allows that or, or and there are more and more that have it. Um, here in Chicago, we have IO, there's Second City, there's The Annoyance. And um, it's fun and goofy, and that's maybe reason enough to do it. But I really do think a lot of lessons from improv uh, apply to how to be uh, an active participant in these conversations and how to really empathize with other people. Tina Fey has a whole section on that in her in Bossy Pants, uh, which is probably very, very similar to the SN book, but it's the lessons that she took from improv into her career work, into her business kind of role. Claire, if people want to reach you online, where can they? Yeah. So, you know, people can email me at Claire at knowyourcompany.com, or you can find me on Twitter at uh, CJLou23. And Dan? 
Uh, yeah, folks can email me dan at tablexi.com or they can see me performing at IO Chicago or Comedy Sports. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'll plug my shows. I'm like above it. Yeah. That, speaking of pretexts to get information on recording, yeah. <laughs> That's so awesome, Dan. I love that recommendation too. I think there are so many parallels between improv and positive communication at work. So thanks to both of you for coming on. I really appreciate it. And Tech Done Right is a production of Table XI and is hosted by me, Noel Rappin. You can find Table XI on Twitter at Table XI and me at Noel Rapp. The podcast is edited by Mandy Moore and you can reach her on Twitter at the Ruby Rep. Tech Done Right can be found at TechDoneRight.io or downloaded via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can send us feedback or ideas on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right or subscribe to our newsletter at techdoneright.io slash newsletter. TableXI is a UX design and software development company in Chicago with a 15-year history of building websites, mobile applications, and custom digital experiences for everyone from startups to storied brands. Find us at tablexi.com where you can learn more about working with us or working for us. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode of Tech Done Right. Tech Done Right.